pray with me? <clears throat> Father, I thank you for this time where we get to um, discuss the things that you've uh, given us to know and to learn for our own good and for your glory. Pray now that you would uh, guide my speech and that we would be edified together um, to follow you and to follow your son and that your son would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. So in our passage today, Jesus very plainly states at the very outset that if you remain or abide, it's a very common word, um, it means to stay somewhere. Jesus goes to a town and he remains there. It means to like set up shop, you know, camp out, stay in someone's house. If you remain in his word, in his, in his teaching, then you are truly his disciple. So you can't just kind of wave at it in passing and go by. You've got to actually remain in it. Okay? And then if you're truly his disciple, then you will know the truth, he says, verse 31. And if you know the truth, you will be free. You'll be free. There's a spiritual freedom that comes. And this freedom, um, today is the, 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 the uh, feast of the transfiguration. It's the commemoration of the day or of the time when Jesus went up on the mountain and he kind of like peeled back the curtain and showed his glory to his disciples. There were the three disciples up there, and then Moses appeared, and Elijah appeared, and they're, they're like, what is going on? This is a huge, momentous event, a momentous event in Jesus' ministry because it really, he shows who he really is. And this freedom is given, given its greatest visible expression on earth, in my opinion, before the resurrection, at the transfiguration of Christ. My favorite rendering of it is by this guy named uh, Titian, or Titian uh, from the 1500s. And so here we see Jesus, he's opened up, he's standing tall and strong, he's on top of a mountain, his eyes are cast toward heaven, and heaven's light and glory surrounds him and comes from him as he is revealed as the Son of God. Take note of the posture. This is the posture of a free man. This is the posture of a, of a man who is totally um, at ease and joyful and who is oriented towards God. That's the point of the posture, right, is that it draws you up into heaven. This posture is that of a free man. But what kind of slavery does Jesus save us from? Here's the absolute best depiction I have seen of modern Western spiritual slavery. It comes from the cover of a 2015 issue of The New Yorker. It's pretty poignant, isn't it? The posture is not upright. The posture is not oriented towards heaven. The posture is not, this is not a religious magazine, by the way. It's published by the National Geographic, if they still publish it. This posture is bent. It's curved inward. It's focused down on a device, on the ground, on the self. Let's leave that up for a little bit. A long time ago in the 1500s, actually about 80 years before that painting was done. Martin Luther was preaching through the book of Romans and he described this exact state of sin. Father Brian Poppy, our former rector, used to talk about this term um, incurvitas inse, the being curved in on himself. And he says, Our nature, by the corruption of the first sin, being so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them or rather even uses God himself to in order to attain these gifts, but it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. 
See what he said there? Being curved in on itself is that we use God and we bend the best gifts of God inward. And not only do we do that, we fail to recognize we're doing that. There's a double blindness of the spiritual slavery where all things become something that we can consume or use for self-gratification and we're bent in on ourselves. And what better picture than the modern phone, the most teleological, uh, teleologically uh, ambiguous device ever made, its purpose is completely unknown. We use it for our own gratification. We're bent in on ourselves. And what a picture of being curved in and not oriented towards God. It was said in the church fathers that animals rightly walk on four legs because they think about natural things. They have to think about what they eat. They have to think about how they survive. They have to think about how they're going to reproduce. But men are rightly, and women are made rightly to stand on two legs because we can look up and contemplate higher things. We're not only concerned with the natural things of the world. We are. We eat. Food is good. Wine is good. Relationships are good. I like to sleep. All these natural things are good, but it's not all there is. And so when we look up, when we look heavenward, from the very earliest days of humanity, even those who may have been out of contact of the Christian, Judeo-Christian tradition, it was clear there was something more. We're made to contemplate the moral life. It's when we're bent in and down through sin that we actually are less human and more animalistic. Do you see that image? The posture of freedom is one that's oriented outward from the self and upward towards, towards God. And the posture of sin and slavery is one that's bent inward and down towards the ground and self. Throughout John's gospel, thus far we've addressed the message that Jesus is the true son of God, that he's light, that he is life, that he comes to bring new out of the old, that he comes to bring restoration, new birth, new sight, forgiveness of sins. We've discussed all of that. And so today I thought on my final Sunday at Resurrection, uh, we'd talk about slavery to sin because I want you to feel really comfortable. So what is he delivering us from? And I'm zeroing in, I'm, I'm, instead of trying to preach this whole section, I'm zeroing in on that verse where he says, those who practice sin are slaves to sin. What does that actually look like? What does it actually look like for you and I to be slaves to sin? Slavery to sin is the opposite of dwelling in Christ's word. It's dwelling on lies and on the wisdom of this world. It's also the opposite of being a child of God. You see how he said his father is, is in heaven. And if you're, if you're uh, a person of faith, your father is Abraham, who's the father of many nations and a blessing to the world. The opposite of that is being a child of Satan and of lies. And you're not at home with God, you're actually at home in a different place. It means you have, being, being a slave to sin means you have little or no agency, and it means that you're subjected to the power of sin. You submit to its dominating influence, willingly. So the first way that I want us to talk about slavery to sin there's two ways. One is that slavery to sin is gradual. Most often is gradual. And number two, slavery to sin involves good things. Those are the two things. There's a hundred things we could talk about, but the two I want to talk about is that it's gradual and that it involves good things. So number one, it's gradual. Satan wants you to believe that your sin is really not that big of a deal. It was just one time. 
or it's only been a few times this year or this month. No one else has been hurt by it. Start to rationalize. And when you do this, you'll justify this and then you'll isolate yourself. You won't tell anyone about it. You'll tell God on Sunday morning, mainly, that, uh, man, I I, uh, shouldn't have done that. Uh, Forgive me for not doing so well this week. Remains vague. It remains this, this vague understanding that I haven't done so well and God can forgive my, my blanket situation of sin, but there's not a specific confession. Of course, we'll never specifically confess something that we've done or something that we shouldn't have done to, to a specific person out loud. It's far safer to tell God in private something general than it is to tell someone publicly or someone that you know something specific. And eventually, it just gets worse. You'll get more entrenched in a habit. In the screw tape letters, something that C.S. Lewis wrote Um, it's written from the point of view of an elder demon who's writing to his understudy nephew who is assigned to a man to try and draw him away from God, right? So there's this dramatic retelling of like, what would you do if you were trying to sabotage a Christian life? And here's what he says to him. Um, He he tells his nephew, uh, demon, you're anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. Like you you wanna tell me that the guy that you're assigned to has made some great big fall. And let me tell you, that's not, Really, the most effective way to get someone away from God. It says, do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate man from the enemy, enemy being God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and into nothing. See that? The cumulative effect of it. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Satan doesn't have to get you to leave everybody in your, in your life and murder someone. He'll use the smallest thing as long as it's habitual and over time has that gradual effect that he wants it to have. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Did you get that? Without milestones, without signposts. All of a sudden, one day you look back and it's been three years, five years, ten years. How long has this habit, how long has this slavery to this thing been going on? And it may not even get more frequent. It might stay pretty tame relative to others, so uh, that's what you'll do to justify it next. You'll tell yourself that it's not nearly as bad as it could be. Right? It's not nearly as bad as it could be. Other people are way worse. It's just, it's just losing your temper. You didn't hit anyone. Right? It's just occasional porn. You didn't actually cheat. Uh, you're, you're really healthy and you only get drunk once in a while. It wasn't that big of a lie. I didn't go into debt to buy all that stuff. I just cleaned out the savings account for stuff I didn't need. Meanwhile, the grooves turn into deep tracks, which you will find it more and more difficult to come out of. Gradually, the sin becomes a habit. The habit becomes a part of your character. And then your mind and your heart are desensitized to the sin and are formed into the kind of heart and mind which do not accurately assess the moral value of a given action. You then become blinded to it. In Romans 1, it says that uh, when we give ourselves over to sin, that our minds are darkened. That we're unable to actually rationally evaluate the world for what is good and what is not good, because we have been formed according to what is not good when we give ourselves over to sin. And so it becomes this gradual progression 
away from the light and into darkness. And eventually, if we're not careful, um, we begin to acquire a taste and a, and a love for that which is not good. So you can keep things a secret, but the gradual slide into sin is one where the slavery will become more and more assured because that curved back will one day refuse to straighten properly again. Right? It's easier to stand up when you're like this. It's harder to stand up when you're stuck like this. So how long are you looking down at the ground? How long are you engaged in that sin? Repent while you can, specifically. The freedom offered now in Christ is one where we practice the kinds of things that lead to an upright posture that gazes out away from the self and up at Christ in the round world with a clear conscience and sound mind. So remaining in Christ's word as he, as he calls us to do in this passage is the same thing in process as gradually giving ourselves to sin. You see this? It's actually not very different in practice practically. So like, just like it doesn't have to be this catastrophic fall into sin, there doesn't have to be this monumental light out of the sky transfiguration moment for you to be more like Jesus and to love God. Do you know that? 99.9% of your life and every Christian life is going to be so utterly normal and mundane, it won't make good TV. It would make a bad book. Just a bad book. You made breakfast. You went to work. Put your kids to bed. Brushed your teeth. Prayed. But like doing that in a healthy way, oriented at God, over the course of 20 years, then you become the kind of person who's patient while doing mundane things rather than the kind of person who's impatient and angry, in, impatient and angry doing mundane things. Do you see the difference? So we have a, a wonderful opportunity in front of us in all of our lives because you all have mundane parts of your lives where you can do very normal habits, spiritual habits, and be formed into the image of God. Last thing I'll say on the gradual slide, it's very rare that a person can truly hide the effect of sin. Like you sometimes hear about the person who, gosh, they, they did something, for, they served for 30 or 40 years, everyone thought they were great, and then boom, you find out there's this secret sin that no one knew about. Um, that's pretty rare. And that, that person's usually a sociopath and really good at manipulation and lying. It's more often the case that a tree will be known by its fruit. You will smell like what you sleep in. You ever walk into someone's house? It's like everyone's house have a smell. It's like you smell like your house. It doesn't mean it's bad. You just smell like where you live. What you live in, you will smell like. And you'll know 10 to 20 years from now, oh, that person has a, has a close relationship with God. You can just see it on them. Or hey, that, th that thing about that person is kind of off. There's something under there. That's not just like a, a trait or whatever. Like there's something under there that's unhealthy. And when I see it in my own life, I go, dang it. I have so much room for growth. So none of us are perfect, but the goal is to be more like Jesus than not. And that comes over time through the formative habit of obedience. Get this, even when you don't feel like it. So slavery to sin can be very gradual. It can be not gradual, but more often than not, Satan is going to try and use cards over murder. Second, slavery to sin involves good things. What do I mean by that? So St. Augustine in the 5th century is the one who famously um, made the point that evil and sin does not exist 
of its own accord. So like God, there's not like a substance that's evil. Right? God created everything, all that is, seen and unseen, right? And the only thing that can come from a good God is good stuff. So what happened? The good stuff gets distorted. Evil is a privation of good, right? So what he makes good becomes distorted and wicked in its opposition to God. Sin and evil happens when that which God has made is twisted away from its good intentions or deprived of its fuller purpose. Uh, Who made food? Sex, beauty, precious metals, relationships, human bodies, human minds, animals, the whole world. Who made all of that? God made it all. It all belongs to him. Its ultimate purpose is to be enjoyed. You hear that? It should be enjoyed. And it should point us back to God as the creator for his glory. So when, every, when anything is used in a way that does not point back to God as creator, but is used, instead of enjoyed unto God, it is used unto self and consumed at the expense of others, at the expense of my relationship to God, and I turn in on myself, that's when it becomes evil and sinful. You see that? The same exact thing can be used for good or for evil. That's why it's so deceptive. You can use your money to feed the poor or to just buy yourself more stuff. You can use your hands to hit or to hold. Right? So when Jesus Christ was glorified and transfigured on the mountain, we saw the same Jesus who was born in a manger. Right, who, who, who hung on the cross, who walked through the dirty streets. He had the same hair, the same robes, the same face. And you know what it said? It didn't say that he had new hair and new face and new clothes. It said the ones he had were lit up from the inside. They were glorified. They were transposed up. His face was like the sun. His hair was snow white. His, clo- his clothes were, were white as they could possibly be, whiter than this. And he was, he was like lightning. And then when it was over, back to normal. The same Things that make up our ordinary lives are meant to be transposed and filled with the glory of God and used for glorious purposes. And when they're not and they're oriented down, they get dirty and evil ensues. Every one of our sins are rooted in a very human desire or need that has then been dehumanized, has been hijacked, has been used for personal gain, the pain of others, sensuality, material hoarding, or more. Rather than getting rid of that desire, Jesus is here to reorient that desire back to where it's supposed to go. See that? So when you're lonely or stressed, you eat food or compulsively shop online. When you're stressed or angry, you drink alcohol or you lash out at others. When you feel rejection, you watch porn. You know what I would tell you? Of course you want to fix loneliness. Of course you don't want to feel lonely. Of course you don't want to be stressed or angry. Of course you want connection. Of course you want to feel accepted. It was God's idea to make you accepted. It was God's idea to give you relationships. It was God's idea for you to live without toxic stress. It was God's idea for you to be at peace and to have joy and to want those things. That's God's idea. That's not your idea. It's not the world's idea. Everyone in the world is marketing on the ideas that God made up, like being happy, frolicking on the beach. You didn't make that up. God made the beach. God gave you legs to frolic. 
Frolic more. God did that. It's his invention. All we can do is to encourage the humans. Sorry. I've jumped down to a quote. All we can do is abide in and obey the word of Christ and use those things as they were meant to be used. Again, in the Screwtape Letters, the elder demon says this. He's talking to his nephew. Never forget that when we're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying, satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's, God's, ground. See that? When we're talking about true pleasure and happiness, whose territory are we in? God's. Not Satan's. He's boring. He's like super lame. You would never want to hang out with Satan. He has no original ideas. He's a turd. All he does is steal from God and warp it. That's all he does. So he says, I know, the, the demon says, I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. <laughs> he made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy, God, has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. See that? So you take the pleasure that he's made and it gets warped and you use it in a way that we're not supposed to, at a time we're not supposed to, to a degree we're not supposed to. So like, enjoy a drink of wine at the wedding. Don't have 10 or whatever. Hence, the demon says, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that which in which it is least natural. You see that? Diving further into the pleasure in a devious way is unnatural and animalistic. It's curved down, isn't it? The most humane and most natural thing you can do is have as much joy and pleasure in the world as God intended for the love of others and for the love of God. Isn't that awesome? The easy example here, just, just to kind of illustrate, is sex, right? Enjoyed rightly, it's a means to produce new life. Like, I've got a little baby right here who is cute as you could possibly be. We all know where that came from, right? Like, that's the potential for sex, is beautiful new life. And then, and then the, the union and the intimacy of a couple together. Now, what happens when it's distorted and twisted? could be as um, on the spectrum as just promiscuity all the way down to abuse and neglect and just there's no end. Like as, gr as, as great as the thing is, that's the degree to which it can be evil. And so we're called to use things rightly, not wrongly. So you're lonely, angry, rejected, and stressed. Instead of going to those pleasures, but then distorting them. Be vulnerable and tell your friend, another Christian, your spouse, pray. Engage in healthy habits and rhythms of rest. Serve others. Give your time and money away. Get your focus off yourself. Sit at the table with others and share a meal. Listen to their story and empathize with them. Love your neighbor. Sing songs to God. Smile. Thank him. Express gratitude for specific things that he's given you. There's a lot that he's given you. No matter who you are in this room. Go outside. Open your eyes. Maybe wait another month or two, but go outside and open your eyes. Look out the window. 
today. And imagine what it would be like 30 degrees cooler, maybe 6,000 feet up in elevation and 1,000 miles north. Um, no, 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 I'm kidding. Obviously, there's beauty everywhere. And go outside and see God in all of it. Listen to good music. View good art. Meditate on and memorize scripture. Discuss it in the context of community and fellowship. In these ways, you will find connection through vulnerability, which leads to healing. It's a little brain science nugget, actually. When we're vulnerable in, this, in the safe in a safe context, we find healing. Instead, what sin does, we find isolation through lies. It's not that bad. Didn't really do it. Didn't hurt anybody. I don't really need to confess it. I don't need to change. We find isolation through lies, which leads to damage and death. And we know that. We've all experienced that. Do you have the courage to choose the right way? God will give it to you. Satan cannot create a new pleasure for you that is intrinsically evil. He has to distort and to twist your desires. He wants to use apparently good things of life just as much as blatantly bad ones to lead you away and to make you a slave to sin. Freedom in Christ, therefore, in your everyday life looks like enjoying the pleasures of life as windows into deeper knowledge of God. I'd like to put the photo back up uh, of the New Yorker magazine. So as we, can, as we consider this in closing, the most tragic element of this depiction is not that the man who is designed to stand up straight is bent and curved. It's not just that, right? It's not that he is looking at a device which may do more harm than good. The great tragedy, in my mind, of this depiction of the man curved in on himself is that he fails to see right above him a butterfly. I think I just think it's genius. I don't know who drew this. I wish I could figure it out. I've tried. It had to have been a Christian. If it wasn't, they're almost there. The tragedy is that they miss the beauty right above them. When we are curved in on ourselves, we miss what God has for us in everyday life for the rest of eternity. I'll finish with this last quote from, um, from the Screwtape Letters. I almost just read the whole book to you this morning because it's so good. This is when the demon is trying to, dis- to discuss like, how their tactics differ from the tactics and motivations of God. He says, To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. Giving ourselves over to sin eradicates our selfhood and gives it over to the enemy. It's subjugation. But the obedience which the enemy, God, demands of men is quite a different thing. It's not like a slavery you've ever seen or heard of. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth, the demon says. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their, we- their wills freely conform to his, just like the sons. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. 
And so do you find yourself in the house of the Lord in obedience to the word of Christ? Oriented at beauty. My final plea and prayer for every one of you at Church of the Resurrection is that you would look up and that you would stay away from yourself, from sin, and that you would stare into the face of the glorified Son of God and that you would find that freedom and slavery to God makes you a true child, an heir to the kingdom of God, to the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.